That's right. I want to start by saying this. My wife, you can pull me down, not all the way down, but just not all that way up. So my wife is, she's at work today. I'm a little more bold to talk about my wife when she's not here to look at me or threaten me. You don't know what it's like. I'm just kidding. My wife is a fantastic cook. She does 99% of the cooking at the house. She does most of all of that stuff, and she does a fantastic job. We are creatures of habit. We have the same things just about every week because it's easy. It's cost-effective. Our kids actually eat it, so it makes sense for us. So we get tired of foods fairly quickly because we have it all the time. But uh, it works because that's what the kids eat. Now, I remember a time where we had Tina and I believe Warner and our friends from Mississippi over to the house, Nita Ferris, and maybe Kelly was there at that time, some of her daughter, Nita's daughter. And Sarah had made spaghetti. Spaghetti's easy, it's cheap, and you can make a lot of it for a lot of people. So we all sat down to the table and we sat to eat this spaghetti. But this was different spaghetti than what I was used to having every Thursday night or however often we have that. Something was, something was different about this spaghetti. Let me be very clear for the recording and for you people that my wife does a fantastic job of cooking spaghetti. Okay, can I be very clear about that? So no, none of you people get mad at me. I see your stones you're, you're holding in your hand ready to throw at me. Listen, she's a fantastic cook, but there was something special about this spaghetti on this particular day. And it was that she had sauteed the onions first and that she had put some peppers in there, I think, and sauteed those. And she had, she had let it sit in a crock pot for hours and hours and hours. As opposed to what is the more normative course of action, we go when we find this half-gallon thing of prego or ragu or whatever that stuff is called, and we dump it in there and, and there's some meat and there's some things and it all tastes good. She might put some spices in there or season it in a certain way. But this spaghetti was different. This spaghetti was different. Why? Because we were making preparations for our guests to arrive. It wasn't, oh, Alan's coming home from work. Let me, let me cook this in the crock pot for about 10 hours. You know, not that she has to do that by any stretch to make me happy, but that's not what she did. She, didn't, she, she did that for the guests that were coming that day. That's why the spaghetti was so much different. So now she says, uh, we're having spaghetti tonight, so I'm very carefully asking her over the phone, is this spaghetti spaghetti or is this guest spaghetti? <laughs> Most of the time it's this spaghetti. I'm like, oh, thank you. I'm so happy to come home and eat spaghetti. There's something different about guest spaghetti, and it was that she was preparing for our guests to be there. And we do that, don't we? We do that. For pastors, a lot of times they have a sermon they call their sugar stick sermon. If, you're, if a pastor is invited to some place, especially if it's a short notice type of a thing, they're filling in doing pulpit supply for another pastor who's out or sick, he'll go to his... He'll go to his, uh, his archives and he'll find one that he feels really good about, one that he didn't have to really study over a lot because he's put all that work in the first time, one that he feels is a, is a real good one. That's his sugar stick, and he'll go to it. 
And we do that sometimes when we're making preparations for our guests. We want to give them the best. We want to appeal to them in the best way. We want to prepare the house for our guests to come over. When we have missional community, or we used to, we used to really clean up the house. And then we realize once you get seven or three or one kid in there, it all goes, it all goes down the tubes. So we're like, we're not even cleaning this house. You know, we clean it, we mop it, we do all these things, and the kids go outside, they walk once through the Bermuda grass, and all the Bermuda grass that is in our yard makes its way in the house. That's why if you see my yard, you see mostly weeds. Where's the Bermuda? The kids have tracked it back into the house. Thank you very much. Okay, so this is what happens. But we make preparations for these people to arrive. We do this. My family comes out of town. Listen, when Sarah's mom comes into town, Sarah's all, they always schedule it to where Sarah's mom arrives on the day that Sarah's working and I'm off. And Sarah always tells me, I want the house clean for when my mother gets there. Which I want to say this, there's really no point in doing it because everything I do, whether I spend two hours or 12 hours on the house, Mimi, whom I love if you're listening to this, Mimi comes in and she just cleans the house a little bit better. Well, a lot better. There's not, there's not a blade of Bermuda to be found in my house when Mimi cleans it. She comes in there, and if everything's okay clean, she says, well, let me just arbitrarily start changing everything everything that's on your shelves. Under our sink, you have the left side, which are your cleaning things, and then the right side, well, it's right side cleaning things now, and we had all of your your, your Ziploc bags and all that stuff on the left side, your tinfoil, your saran wrap, all this stuff. Mimi thought it'd be a good idea. I'm going to go in there. I'm just going to swap them. Just arbitrary changes, just to stay busy, you know, and she's helping. She's doing all these great things. But the point is, when Mimi comes, Sarah wants me to have the house ready so that Mimi doesn't feel that she has to come and clean the house, but she does it anyway. But we make preparations. We make preparations. This is, this is normative custom across the world, by the way. Go look sometimes at what happens when presidents go to other countries or when other leading officials come to the United States. They make preparations to honor them, to welcome them, to all these things because this is who we are. This is how we operate. This is how we operate. We make preparations. So in this part of the text, John is making preparations for the beginning of Christ's ministry. But John is unique in the fact that John, before the foundations of the world, John was set apart. Now, I would say that all of us are set apart, that all of us are playing a role in the big narrative. All of us have a role to play in not preparing for Christ's advent because he's already come, but we are preparing for Christ's second coming. We are sharing the same message of repentance that John has shared in preparation for the reality that Christ will return and he will return with a sword and he will return and judgment will befall the world. All these things will happen. So we're in the same boat as John saying, you've got to be ready. You've got to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're making preparation at all. But the Bible pulls back the curtain and labors to show us that John plays a very particular role. You and I won't always know our role. We might not even know that in heaven if we do know that at all. We know what we're commanded to do, but we don't know exactly how we impacted the world or how God uses us to impact the world. And that's okay. That's okay because our calling is to obedience, not to, not to glory in the fact that we have been used by God. We glorify God if he should choose to use us or not for that matter. But this is what John is called to do. And so here we get to this new character that's introduced into the book of John 
John the Apostle introduces Jesus in, in rare fashion with his prologue. And now John the Apostle is going to introduce to us John the Baptist. So we're going to camp out on John the Baptist today. There's lots that is said about John the Baptist over several chapters in all the Gospels, which is interesting because, and, and this is the reason I want to highlight John the Baptist today, not because he was Christ, because he labors to say, I'm not the Christ. In fact, I'm not even worthy to remove his sandal. I'm not even worthy to deal with his feet, which according to that culture was reprehensible to actually touch someone's nasty feet. Case in point, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, this was a huge deal. So John is saying, I'm not even worthy to touch what would be the, the, the filthiest part of his body. So John is laboring to make sure that you know, I'm not the Christ, because he was asked about that. Are you the Christ? Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? He says, no. I'm not even worthy to untie the, the, or remove the sandal of the one who's coming. I'm not the light. Here's the true light that is on his way. So John is, plays a specific role. And because, there's, because he shows up in a lot of places, I'm only going to deal with a little bit of John the Baptist today. That's all we're going to deal with, but there's more to John the Baptist than just what we'll see today. And we'll see that as we get into the later chapters of the book of John. So here's the text. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 of John chapter 1, or, but we're only going to deal with verses 6 through 8. So there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as the witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe him, all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So a few things before we kind of really take off into this for just a little bit, a few things you need to see about this. Let's break this down for just a second. There was a man sent from God. Now, if you didn't catch it and there was a man, you see it in all of John's interaction, in all of John's humility as he says, I'm not him. I'm not Christ. I am unworthy. Let me be clear. I am a forerunner. I'm here to help make preparation for the one to come. So don't look at me as if I'm God's gift to the world because Christ is that. And so the fact that it says he is a man sent from God. The reason this is positioned here in this text directly after you see and meet the God man is for contrast. So when you look and say, oh, there's a man, don't think this is arbitrary language. Okay, well, there was a man, here's a man. The contrast is intentional because Jesus is not just a man. John is just a man. So it's there for contrast. It's there for the purpose of highlighting Christ again. Even though it's focusing on John there, it's for the purpose of highlighting the deity of Jesus. So a man, a man, a mere man sent from God whose name was John. You see, John is another piece that's strategically placed so that the world may know Christ. When we went through uh, the book of Ruth, when we went through the book of Genesis, and so many others, we're always highlighting the fact that although God uses a lot of people that we'll never know he uses and that those people might never know God uses them, God highlights people throughout the scriptures. And he shows us, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal to you how I'm using this guy. And there, was, there, was, there are few that are, that are put out there so very clearly as John the Baptist. I mean, there's so much that has been said about him. He's a man 
By contrast, he's not Jesus. He's a man sent from God. God is using this ordinary man, this weird backwoods hillbilly type guy. He's using him saying, this guy I have sent, I have, I have preordained that he would be the one that would be the forerunner. It was prophesied about John in Isaiah chapter 40 that this man, this crazy man who eats locusts and wild honey, this man would be the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, in the desert, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he came to bear witness, it says. And I want you to think about this. This is something that one of the, one of the commentators pointed out that I thought was, was, was I, might not, I probably wouldn't have seen. The fact, that, the fact that he has to bear witness of Christ, the fact that he is essentially an advocate, that he's someone that says, hey, I'm going to bear witness about Christ who's coming. I'm going to bear witness about the Messiah. Shows the broken state of the world, the fallenness of man, that man can't see for himself Jesus. When Jesus arrives on the scene, that John has to say, look, this is the one I'm talking about. Let me convince you. Let me articulate this for you. Let me argue this for you so that you might believe, so that you might be brought to faith because of his gospel. The fact that there's someone that has to bear witness is telling of the sad state of the world that someone had to bear witness because the world would not recognize Jesus in its fallen state. So God in his grace, he has sent someone to bear witness. This is someone that we might know Jesus, that we might not confuse him, because the world did confuse him. They looked at John. Are you the one? Because John's baptizing. John's, John's saying, repent, repent, repent. He's, he's speaking to the face of Judaism. He's saying, no, 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 not, not works, not works. He's saying, you need fruits that are in keeping with repentance, is what he says to the Pharisees later. But John's got a different message. John's preparing the way. He, this is a man that's coming, a man that's coming, and it's going to be based on this man that you're going to have hope and have life. He had to bear witness because the world wouldn't recognize him. They're calling him Elijah. They're saying, and they did the same thing. Uh, they did the same thing with others. Jesus, remember when he's walking with the disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say that you're a prophet. Some say you're this or that. They didn't get it. They didn't see it. So God, in his mercy and grace, he says, I'm going to send someone to bear witness of who Jesus is. So who was John the Baptist? So a few things about John the Baptist. And there's not a lot that's unpacked here in the book of John, so I took from the other synoptic gospels. Because the book of John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one thing that's consistent is that they all tell the story of John the Baptist. So that tells me that he plays a very significant place in this narrative. So that's why we want to spend just a little bit of time this morning looking at John the Baptist. So who was John the Baptist? Well, he wasn't a normal guy. Lived in the desert, ate locusts and wild honey. Doesn't tell us why he was out there, why he had this thing with locusts. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I can understand the wild honey. I guess that's pretty tasty. But, but why would he wear clothing made of camel's hair, you know, when there was fabrics and other things that he could use? Why would you want to live out in the desert? Why would you want to be that kind of nomadic type person? Why would you want to do that as opposed to enjoying some of the comforts of their day? Which presumably he did not do. He lived in the desert, ate locusts and wild honey. One, one author wrote, he was like an under-socialized relative who shows up unannounced and unexpected at holidays or other social function and he embarrasses everybody. I don't know if you have someone like that in your family or lives across the street from you. I don't know if you have that, you know, but, but I understand that. I think of, I think of 
the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Cousin Eddie. Nobody wanted to see Cousin Eddie come through the door in his bathrobe and all that fun stuff, you know, smoking the big stogie. Nobody wanted to interact with him because he's that guy, he's that uncle, he's that weirdo. And this commentator says this is probably how people viewed John the Baptist. He was blunt. He was blunt. He wasn't politically correct. When the Pharisees came to him when he was baptizing, this is, this is recounted in Matthew and in Luke, and he comes, and I'm not sure if this is recounted in Mark. I didn't, I didn't see that. But in the book of Matthew, the Pharisees come up to him. Hey, what's going on? What's happening? He's baptizing. He responds to them by saying, you brood of vipers, which if you, if you don't know, that's condescending. So he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you? He says, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, that, that's how we'll know that you're right. Not because of your law keeping, not because of what you can quote, not because of your piety, you know, not because of all these things. He says, you keep fruit, you, you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, then we'll know if it's legitimate or not. So he's very bold, he's very blunt. I don't know if you've been around blunt people like that. But it's kind of awkward when you're in a conversation and someone doesn't have maybe the tact that you do or that you would like. You're engaging in conversation, whether it's a gospel conversation or, or a hard conversation of any sort or any kind of conversation. And you have someone that just says, hey, <laughs> well, you're an idiot. Or that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. When maybe your approach would be like, look, let's, let's rethink this. You know, let's look at this from a different perspective. And so you are the one person that says, let's, let's help them see this differently rather than just saying, hey, that's a dumb way to look at it or that's idiotic or that's, that's, that's stupid, you know. But rather, let's get them to see it on their own that these things are wild and outlandish. Maybe this is how John was, according to one commentator. John was a no-nonsense kind of guy. He confronted the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. He was a man of great humility, or at least he had humility because the Bible captures that and the fact that he labors to say, I'm not the one, I'm not the one. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's the one coming. That's, that's who your attention needs to be given to and that's where our focus belongs. He's the hope, he's the light, I'm not the light, he is. In John 3.30, which we'll see later, I don't want to go to it too much, but he says, I must decrease, he must increase. And I'm sure that people then had just as much a propensity as we do now to, to draw the attention to ourselves. Because we do that. But evidently, John was not that person. I mean, sure, he drew attention to himself by what he ate and what he wore and because of his bluntness. But in terms of Christ, he wanted to be very clear that this is where salvation comes from, not from me. So he was a humble man. He was a witness. This is someone who has credibility to their story. John was set apart for the task of being a forerunner for Christ long before we see it here in the text. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 2 through 4. A voice cries in the wilderness, or another word for desert there. He cries in the wilderness or the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So years and years and years before John has arrived on the scene, Isaiah is prophesying about the one who will be the voice crying in the wilderness, make 
way for the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. And now John is here, which is fantastic because the Jews that, he, that he's talking to, these Pharisees specifically that he's talking to, they would know that this was said. And all of a sudden, John's like, hey, I'm the guy. I'm the guy that's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. And you're hearing me say it. So put that in your pipe and smoke it kind of a thing. Right? He's, I'm the one. I'm the one in the voice crying out in the wilderness. Because he's a witness. And it started before his time on earth. It was before the foundations of the world. John's story really is miraculous. It really is miraculous. When you look at John's story and when you look at Jesus' story, when you go to uh, Luke 1 and read verses 5 through 21, if you parallel that with everything that happened with Mary and the angel visiting Mary and saying, hey, don't be afraid, you're going to have a child and all of these things, virgin birth, you've got John who's a very similar story, obviously not a virgin birth, but Elizabeth, his mother, was barren was barren, much like Sarah, Abraham's wife, much like others that God blessed and said, hey, I'm going to give you a child, and this is what's going to happen. And where you have these other children that are born, like the children born or the child born to Sarah, you have the seed that comes from that. This is a little bit different tra- trajectory, but it's all going to the same thing. You have this barren woman, Elizabeth, her, her husband, the priest, uh, Zechariah, and they're barren. And then this angel comes, Gabriel comes to Elizabeth and says, hey, uh, something's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to have a child. You know, uh, I'm gonna, uh, the Lord's going to open your womb. And you're going to conceive. And you're going to name him John. And so somewhere around that same time was when Mary, probably a, well, a bit before, Mary comes or, 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 or the Lord comes and appears. You know, there's an appearance to, uh, there's an appearance to Mary saying, hey, don't be afraid. This is going to happen. You're going to name him Jesus. So this is communicated to Mary and to Joseph and all these things. So a very similar story. Well, then something really incredible happens. So Elizabeth knows Mary. Mary knows Elizabeth. They're having a conversation one day. And you've got John in the womb of Elizabeth, Jesus in the womb of Mary, and they're talking. And the, well, the moment that they come together, it says that John leapt in the womb. I don't think this was just a little kick or something like this. I think this was something substantial because when that happened, the description that that the that the Bible gives to that is that John was filled with the Holy Spirit. So there seemed to be a connection with all of these things. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say this, and I'll say this from the beginning. There are a lot of scholars who weigh in on this issue. And I think most of them arrive at this point and say, you know what, we don't really 100% know for sure. This is our speculation. This is what we think. I appreciated Arthur Pink's approach to this. He says, you know, I'll say this, but I really don't want to say anything more. He took a very cautious approach to this because you don't want to attribute something to John that shouldn't be attributed to John. But let me just say this. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15 is where we see that John was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus did not give the Holy Spirit until the ascension. Jesus said, I will send a helper to you. I believe, my personal conviction, is that people were not indwelt with the Holy Spirit until the ascension, until, until Jesus sent the helper. So New Testament, post, post, uh, post-crucifixion, 
ascension, all that. Jesus sends, so people are indwelt. I think there's anointing of the Spirit. I think there's leading of the Holy Spirit. All of these things that happen in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Now, there are those that would think, yes, the Old Testament saints were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. If they are, that's fantastic. That's fine. I'm okay with that. What I'm looking at in the text doesn't seem to give a lot of evidence for that, at least what I see. Now, I'm a limited, flawed human being, and I am not a scholar by any stretch, but I just have to be true to my convictions. And I just don't see where Old Testament saints were filled, were indwelt in that sense, indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So I think, I think, and I'm joining the ranks of other scholars or or, or of scholars who would argue this with humility in saying that this was more of an anointing, this was a setting aside for a task, that the Lord was withing. So I don't think that it means that he was a follower of Christ that's six months old in the womb. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that that baby wouldn't go to heaven or I'm not getting into that argument. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, and I'm not talking age of accountability. I'm just saying, I don't think that he was indwelt with the Holy Spirit in a salvific sense because that had not happened yet. That did not come, I don't believe, until Christ, until Christ had uh, did what he had come to do. But there's something really special about, the, the, about surrounding the pregnancies between Mary and Elizabeth, which just points us to the fact that there's something special about John as the forerunner, as the forerunner of Christ. So John was raised his entire life being told that he was to prepare the way of Christ. I believe that he knew that he was going to be the one preparing the way of Christ. I don't know if he sat on the edge of his seat and he said, you know what, I can't wait to say these things. I can't wait to proclaim these things. The Bible doesn't record in his teenage years or his young adult years when he was transitioning from tunics to camel. I, I, don't, I don't know about any of that kind of stuff. I think, that, I think that, you know, who knows when he knew or who knows what he knew at what point but I do believe that, well, he, he obviously knew uh, at some point. I don't know when all that happens. The Bible doesn't record that, but that's really not the issue. But John was, John was raised, and I believe he understood that he was to prepare the way of Christ. At what point, who knows, but he did understand it. So let's get this straight. God was going to choose a man who is described as a wild man, a man who ate locusts and wild honey, to be the forerunner of Christ. Seems about right. Let's take a look at God's pattern in choosing instruments that he wills. It seems fitting that God would choose someone like John the Baptist. Someone who is a little bit strange. Someone who is maybe a little bit out there, a little blunt. I mean, after all, he chose Noah, who was a drunk at times. He chose Abraham, who was a pagan, right? He chose Moses, who was a stutterer and a murderer. He chose Rahab, who was a prostitute, right? He chose Jonah, who was a runner. He chose Peter, who was a denier, a denier of Christ three times. He chose Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. He chose David, who was a small boy. He chose him to not just defeat a giant, but to lead a nation. He chose Mary, who was a virgin. He chose a donkey to speak truth to its owner, Balaam. So John the Baptist fits right into this band of characters just makes sense and then the scripture says not only that there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him John as a witness is testifying that Jesus is the only way to righteousness and I want you to consider the fact that this really started to stir the pot in that first century context 
this misfit, this wild man, this seemingly socially intelligent, so socially intelligent stunted man is now telling the world about the true light that is to come. He's waited all this time and now he gets to blow the roof off. And who would have guessed the events that would transpire? Who would have guessed in that time that what John was saying would turn into what it turned into? That it would essentially be introducing Christianity to the world by title. I don't know if you're on Instagram or Facebook and all that kind of stuff. I assume most of you are. But there are things that happen sometimes where we have no, we just had no way, we just didn't anticipate. I'm thinking in, in, in that culture, there's no way to really anticipate, wow, this is, wow, this is happening. This is crazy. I got to doing some research briefly. Instagram is worth $100 billion. Somebody just said, you know what, let's create an app originally where you can just take a snapshot and post it in this app. It's not revolutionary. It's not groundbreaking. We've been taking pictures for a long time. And this guy said, you know what, I'm going to take a picture of a sandal with a foot in it and a dog. And that was the first Instagram post. And now it's worth $100 million. Created in 2010, the first photo was what I said of the dog and the sandaled foot. Instagram now has 1 billion monthly active users. Monthly. 1 billion. Over 60% of users log in daily, making it the second most engaged network after Facebook. 35% of in Internet users are now on Instagram, and 88% of those users are outside of the U.S. The first photo was of a dog and a bare foot, or a foot with a sandal. No one would have expected Instagram to take off the way that it did. And maybe John had expectations. Maybe he did not. He knew that, hey, I'm the forerunner. I'm to say, make ready the way of the Lord. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he did that. He did that. So John's role in the narrative is the same role that you and I are to play today. We are to prepare the way for Christ. We're to make preparations for his second coming. We're to make preparations in that we tell people, get ready, Jesus is coming. You have to be ready for that. And all that that entails, the mantra of John's life should be the mold from which we cast ours. He must increase and I must decrease. We should exhaust every effort to point out to others. We should, we should exhaust every effort uh, to point others away from ourselves and point them to Christ. This doesn't always happen because we're like the Pharisees. We like the attention sometimes. So let me, let me finish this with some thoughts for application. John's message ended up landing him in prison. Just like so many others, their message of Christ landed them in prison. We're on the fast track of headed the same way today. The message of Christ is not received well, and it shouldn't be received well by dead men unless the Lord is awakening them, unless the Lord is regenerating them and showing them Jesus, giving them faith so that they can receive Christ. So there can be great risk in being a witness for Christ. There definitely was in John's case. There definitely was in many, many, many others' case. But in John's case, he was arrested, and eventually... His head was handed on a silver platter to this young lady that was performing 
for Herod the Tetrarch. And that's, that's where John's faithfulness got him. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that's what happened, and that's the reality. John, while in prison, he asked if Jesus was the one to come, or should they expect someone else? And I thought this was unique. Why would John say this? John knew that he was a forerunner. He knew who Christ was, and then he says this. While he's in prison, he says, wait a second. So he sends word to Jesus saying, i got to be clear. Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Why in the world would John say something like this? John clearly knew that Jesus was the one. He says, I am not the light. He is the light. And I think there's two possibilities. I think one is that John, like many, might have expected for the red carpet to be rolled out. That when a king arrives, a king arrives in kingly fashion. But that's not what we saw in Jesus. We saw that he was a man acquainted with sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised. He was forsaken. That none would esteem him or any of those things. And John sees how Christ came, and he saw how Christ was rejected. The world didn't even know him, it says, which is why there had to be a witness. So maybe that's one idea. The other is that John was taken back when he was imprisoned for preparing the way. And why would God allow this? Do you think that this is what John had in mind when the Savior would come to take away the sins of the world? John saw his purpose maybe as being the one who would be the voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. But maybe the struggle was, I've done all these things, and now I'm in prison. Maybe John thought, have I, have I failed as a forerunner? Have I failed in preparing the way? And I'm, these are just some thoughts. I'm not saying the Bible's teaching this. Let me be clear. I'm wondering what John is thinking, how he's going through those things, because I think we go through that kind of struggle. God has given me this call in my life. God has given me this gifting in my life. And maybe you... Maybe you are faithful to the Lord. Maybe you are, are a faithful witness for the Lord and you never see someone come to Christ and you say, am I failing? Am I doing something wrong? Maybe you're like John and you said, I'm going to own this calling that I have as a forerunner and I'm going to proclaim it to the ends of the earth. But you end up, metaphorically speaking, in prison. You end up with your head offered up on a silver platter. One commentator asked a really good question he says how do you respond when God does not live up to your expectations and I think that's good for you and I to ask ourselves because let's be honest let's be honest we expect big things from God because he's able to do it we read the Bible and we see all these things that God does and we say man God is great and he's wonderful and he's, he's mighty and he wants to be praised. He wants to save people. He wants to do those things. Then why is it that I go and I witness to people? If you do that, why is it that I go and I share Christ and I, I labor and I have these arguments with people, not argument as in uh, you're just wanting to argue because you're combative or confrontational, but you, you debate and you deliberate and you have conversations with people even though it can be awkward and, and ugly sometimes because darkness hates the light and you walk away time and time and time and time again you just don't see people come to Christ. I've been there, and it's a struggle, and then I have to wrestle with, what, what does that mean? What are my expectations? What are you expecting God to do with your faithfulness? And if he doesn't do what you think he ought to do or with what you expect him to do, how do you handle that? Where does your theology take you when you are out and you are living for Christ and pursuing holiness but it seems like catastrophe after catastrophe for you. 
Where does that take you? Where does that take your theology? When you labor over the word of God, but feel that you are still so weak in your faith and in your knowledge of God, what does that do to your expectations of God? If he hasn't, or do you feel like, what do you, how do you respond if he hasn't lived up to your expectations? When you spend hours reasoning with a lost, but rarely, if ever, see someone come to Christ. What do you do when you have these expectations of God and he doesn't live up to what you've created as your expectations? If John came to prepare the way, would you call his calling a success? After all that he ended up, after all, he ended up in jail for his calling and he died for that same calling. Would you say, oh, he's a success. He's a success. Sometimes we feel like failures when we strive towards holiness, godliness, but find ourselves falling short over and over again of the glory of God. We're all guilty. We're all there. We fall short. You will leave here today and you will fall short of the glory of God. Are you a success or are you a failure? Listen to what Jesus had to say about John. We're closing with this. In Matthew 11, verse 11, this is what Jesus says. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now Jesus goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Obviously, there's something about being right before God in the sense that you spend eternity with God. There is something about being a citizen of heaven. But what Jesus is doing, I don't want this to be lost, he is lifting up John he is affirming John he is saying well done John John proclaimed truth he proclaimed repentance and he gave his life for that and Jesus is saying there's no one on earth greater than John the Baptist in that sense he says you know among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist and he's tipping his hat to John saying well done John so John was not a failure and I don't think that you would look at him as a failure but we all understand when we have these expectations and God doesn't live up to them, we struggle and we say, what do we do with these expectations? We are the forerunners of Christ's second coming. We are those saying, Jesus is coming. We're carrying the torch. You be ready. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Be saved in Christ and trust his gospel. The message we have is the same that John shared. When, when John looked at the Pharisees and he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This means that judgment is close. Listen to what he says in the rest of this text. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And listen to this, verse 10. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. This means judgment is close. John's message is revelatory of both God's justice and God's love. God's justice, his wrath. Consider these things the next time that you and I pass up the opportunity to share Christ. Consider these things. Consider the fact that our typical approach towards evangelism is to plead with people on behalf of God's love. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but we have to be aware of the fact that we want to plead with them because of God's wrath, because of God's justice. And I'm not saying that you want to create this motivation that says, I want you to be so afraid of God that you run to him as opposed to seeing how good he is. I'm not saying that, but there has to be a balance because there's a reality here 
that sinners, in fact, are in the hands of an angry God, and he must be angry towards sin. I have an excerpt from, from, from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, but I won't read it for time's sake. But go back and read that sermon if you ever want a good dose of theology when it comes to God and the sinner. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. God's wrath is the purest of hatreds. It's limitless hatred. It's unsettled displeasure towards sin for all time. And it's hard to speak of this in human terms. It's almost like a chef or someone who has a highly trained palate. And when they start eating food that's not really, really excellent food, they struggle to eat it because they're so on the other end of the spectrum. And in a sense, God, who is holy and perfect and pure, he is completely contrary to darkness because he is the light. He is completely contrary to sin. So therefore, since we are sinners and darkness, he must hate. He must be just. There must be wrath. There must be an appeasement of that wrath. This is why the gospel matters so much for the hope of men. Jesus, the God-man, makes it so that through substitution we can inherit his righteousness just like we inherited Adam's guilt. For those who believe and receive the righteousness of Christ, they are no longer the objects of God's wrath because Christ has endured it by becoming a propitiation and appeasement of God's wrath for all who would believe. This is why the message hasn't changed. Because God hasn't changed. God is still a God of justice and God still demands justice. And justice will be dispensed either on Christ or on a lost person who does not repent and trust Jesus. If we spend our lives talking, strategizing, training, and planning to confront people with the gospel, but we never actually do it, it's an indictment on us as God's people. And it's a startling indication that we probably really don't believe the gospel. If we refuse to be intentional with our evangelism, our evangelism, if we're not intentional about sharing the gospel, it does beg the question as to whether or not we really believe it. Do we really believe that God is wrathful? Do we really believe that God is vengeful? Do we really believe in God's justice? Or do we have this Hollywood-esque type picture, this false fallen picture that God is just love? That his wrath doesn't exist, that he is one-dimensional. That is a false God. He doesn't exist. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. He's a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy and grace. May we, like John, decrease so that Christ would increase through the proclamation of the gospel to the world and the necessity of repentance so that they might escape the wrath of God. Having the privilege of receiving Christ's righteousness because he received the wrath of God on our behalf. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, my prayer today is simple. I just pray you convict our hearts to be more intentional about living on mission. 